Thank you guys all so much for being here at Cross, ooh, there we go, at Cross Point Winter Park. Uh, my name is Eric. We've never got the chance to meet before. I'm the operations minister here at Cross Point. Really excited to have you guys here with us uh, this morning. If you're new to Cross Point, maybe this is one of your first times checking us out, one of the things that is central to our service is the reading and preaching of God's word. Um, we believe that actually, like, in this book here, uh, that is in one sense very ancient, has some very profound things to say to us today, whether you're here today as a Christian or not. And so because of that, it's going to be a really big help for me if you could go get a Bible out, turn to Acts chapter 10 in the New Testament. That's where we're going to be spending our time together this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible here with you, there are some on those paperback tables when you walked in. Uh, please take that home with you. Uh, that's our gift to you. We've got the page number for that up on the screen here. Acts chapter 10 is where we're going to be looking this morning. And Acts is a book uh, that we've actually been spending really the last few months going through together. And it's a book written by this man named Luke that's all about the gospel, about what Jesus did and is continuing to do to redeem places and cultures and lives, but particularly, as we're seeing now in the book of Acts, by his spirit and through his church. And today, I think in Acts chapter 10, we have what is really a paradigm-shifting passage for the rest of the history of the world, and one that I think answers a crisis that is in one sense as old as humanity and in another sense could not be more relevant today. So if you would, please open up to Acts chapter 10. We're going to go through the entire chapter today. Um, it's about 48 verses, a little long, but I'm going to read out the whole thing right now ahead of time, which is, it's a little long, but I think that it's going to be really helpful later on for us to kind of have the whole story in mind. So follow along with me, Acts chapter 10, and this is what Luke writes, starting in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa, to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him at dawn, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was with uh, his attendants. He told them everything that had happened, and he sent them to Joppa. Meanwhile, at about noon the following day, as the men were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to a roof to pray, and he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. And so while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw a, from heaven opened up something like a large sheet being let down by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice came and told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was still wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs, do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. 
Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you are looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or even visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So, uh, so when I was sent, I came without raising any objection. May I ask, why have you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour. At three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest at the house of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened in the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how, Jesus, or how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him, hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to people and to testify that he was the one whom God appointed as judge over the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come along with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with him for a few days. All right, so a lot going on there. <laughs> But I think this passage speaks to a deep longing that has been present in humanity as long as we've been on this earth, that is present in our culture today, and that is present somewhere inside each and every one of us in this room here. 
I think we all have this deep desire for a unified society. Right? Despite what it might look like, if you turn on the news or look at social media, the majority of people in our country right now, to be honest, are tired and exhausted and they just want to live in unity with their neighbor. But the problem is that the cultural and racial prejudice of the human heart stands in the way every time. And this is really nothing new. Uh, the first century church uh, that we're reading about here wrestled in many ways with a similar cultural and racial prejudice that was threatening God's plans of this worldwide mission to redeem places and cultures and lives through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Luke is showing us in this passage what I think is the only antidote to that. And in particular, there's three things that he really needs us to see, whether you're here today as a Christian or not. He needs us to see this confrontation, a conversion, and then a community that's formed. So first, the confrontation. In this passage, did you notice? <laughs> it takes a command, a vision, and an angel for God to get Peter's attention. Now, what is so kind of crammed deep into Peter's thick skull that God has got to confront him so head-on with it to get his attention? Well, God is sending someone to Peter right now who's going to question everything Peter thought he knew about himself, everything Peter thought he knew about the world. To understand what is so confrontational, confrontational about God sending Cornelius to Peter, you've got to understand a little bit of the backstory about these two guys and the two different types of people that they represented. So if you look in the first few verses of the passage, we get a pretty good sketch of who this guy Cornelius was. Starting in verse 2, it says that he and all his family were devout and God-fearing people. And that phrase, God-fearing, uh, means that even though Cornelius was someone who didn't grow up of Jewish descent, he went regularly to the synagogue, which was the Jewish place of worship. And then if you read on, you see not only that, he prayed every day at the same time the Jewish people did. And even more than that, we get a sense, we can assume that he even followed to a certain degree the law of God, just a little bit, because it says that he gave regularly to the poor who were around him. So if you just kind of look at it like at face value, you think, man, there's not a whole lot of a difference between this guy Peter and this guy Cornelius. And yet, for any Jewish person growing up at that time, the two couldn't be more different. Cornelius, even though Luke describes him as kind of this good, God-fearing person who went to the synagogue and prayed and gave to the poor, Cornelius, to any Jewish person at that time, was not one of them. Growing up as someone who didn't have any Jewish descent, Cornelius is what's referred to in the Bible as a Gentile. And the cultural and racial prejudice of the Jewish people at that time to the Gentiles was intense. John Stott, who is a famous English pastor, he describes it this way, it's difficult for us to grasp today the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other, even including the God-fearing Gentiles. The tragedy in this was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election that God had chosen them out of all the nations of the earth, that they had twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism, became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised the Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions that kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would ever even enter the home of a Gentile. See, when, when you look at the backstory here, 
you see what's so confrontational about God sending this man Cornelius to Peter because he's not sending just kind of this polite, respectable man to him. He's sending someone to Peter who Peter's been trained his whole life to view as not even human but a dog. And with this kind of better understanding of the backstory, you can see that God in this confrontation is trying to pull out this cultural and racial prejudice that is deep in the heart of Peter and the people he represented at that time, and in particular, what's driving it. You see, Peter's problem, as we're about to see, is that his identity, his sense of self, was in some way formed around his pedigree and his accomplishments. And it's giving him this sense of superiority over every kind of different cultural uh, and race at that time. So you can see it start to come out a little bit in his reaction to uh, the vision of the clean and unclean animals, right? So in in verse nine, God gives him this vision as Peter's praying up on the roof and gets hungry. God gives him this vision of this curtain coming down with all of these different clean and unclean animals on it. And understand what's going on in that. In the Old Testament, there was this whole set of elaborate food laws that labeled some animals clean that you could eat, some animals unclean that you were forbidden to eat. And here, kind of in the midst of this buffet of clean and unclean animals in front of him, God says, hey, Peter, you're hungry? Get up, go kill something, and eat it. And Peter says in verse 14, surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. So in other words, what's happening here is that God is threatening, in a sense, with this, Peter's understanding of himself as this Hebrew person from this Hebrew pedigree who's never eaten anything as far as he can understand. He's never, in his view of his accomplishments, never eaten anything impure or unclean, never defiled himself in any way whatsoever. And this is so central to who Peter is, he's willing in that moment to disobey this voice of God coming down from this vision on high for him. This is what God's confronting in Peter. Because he knows if he doesn't, he'll never get past his cultural and racial prejudice that he was born with to be able to interact with a man like Cornelius that God's sending him to. And this is what God's confronting us with today as well. You see, if like Peter, if like Peter, we allow our identity, our sense of self to be formed around our pedigree and our accomplishments, it will inevitably lead to some sort of cultural and racial prejudice. And there are two different ways that can kind of look. One can be kind of from this place of superiority, like the Jewish people at that time to the Gentiles, but it can also come from this place of inferiority. Either way, if my sense of self is based on my pedigree, my upbringing, and my accomplishments, it will inevitably, at some point, lead to some sort of cultural racial prejudice. In other words, at some point, how can I not look down my nose at someone different than me? And for some of us, you're thinking, that sounds a little harsh. And if that's you right now, hang with me for just a minute, because I think you're gonna see what I'm talking about here. If my sense of identity is in my skin color, for instance. If that's what my sense of self is in, then how can I not at some point look down my nose at someone of a different race than me? 
If my identity is in the amount of money I make, in the part of town I'm from, then how can I not at some point look down my nose at someone who makes more money than me or less money than me? If my identity is in the generation I come from and the values that come out of that, how can I not at some point look down my nose at someone who's older than me or younger than me? If my, gener if, if my identity is in the morals that I have, then how can I not at some point look down my nose at someone who has more morals than me or less morals than me or maybe has a different view of morality altogether? And if I'm speaking for myself, I can have a really hard time not putting my sense of self, my identity, and just kind of being intellectually and theologically read and precise all the time. And it can make me look down my nose at times at Christians from just other persuasions who I might disagree with because I think I clearly know it better than they do. I mean, I can think of two times I did it just in the last week. It's a problem. If my sense of identity is in the political party I vote for, the news network I watch, the God I believe or don't believe in, how can I not at some point look down my nose at somebody who votes different than me, acts different than me, believes different than me, whether from a place of superiority or inferiority, and think that they have less worth than me? You see, that's all that prejudice is. It's assigning worth to people. It's deeming some people clean and some people unclean. And this is what God's confronting Peter and you and me today. Allowing my sense of self to be formed in some way around my pedigree and my accomplishments because it's that thinking that drives this sense of cultural and racial prejudice. So that's the confrontation and out of this, second comes this conversion that Luke needs us to see. But it's a, someone that you might not expect in the passage. All right, we'll get to Cornelius a little bit later, but before we do, we need to see the conversion of Peter that happens in this passage. And what I mean in that is not that Peter needs this conversion in his soul, all right? Don't hear that. I mean, he clearly believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus. What I mean is Peter needs to be converted in his thinking, about who the gospel's for, he needs to believe it not just kind of up in his head, but he needs to believe it to the point that it comes down and reaches into his heart. So Jonathan Edwards, who was this minister in uh, New England in the 1700s, said that to believe something, to really believe it to the point that it's not just kind of intellectual knowledge, but that it begins to shape who you are and how you act. That happens when you connect an abstract idea to a sensory experience. So for example, after college, I went through this phase where I really wanted a motorcycle. Um, nothing big, um, but one of my roommates had one at the time, it was a little one that he would drive like to or from work and around town, and I thought that looked really cool, and so I started researching some of the things I would need to do to buy a motorcycle. Fully aware at the time that there is an inherent danger that exists in driving a motorcycle that's greater than driving a car. Um, but at the time, that was just kind of this abstract idea in my head, until I was driving to work one day, and I saw right in front of me a man driving a motorcycle hit a car head-on at an intersection, and he got thrown from the motorcycle. And suddenly, I did not want to drive a motorcycle anymore, come even near one. 
Not because I think there's anything morally wrong with driving a motorcycle, because in that moment, the abstract idea of the danger inherent in driving a motorcycle met the very real sensory experience of seeing that danger played out. And for someone like me, who's an absolute wuss, that ain't happening. Like, that was way too much for me. I was like, nope, this just got real. The motorcycle phase, that's over. I like cars and a seatbelt. You could say Luke is showing a very similar process happening here in Peter. That Jesus is taking this abstract idea about who the gospel's for, and he's connecting it to this sensory experience with Peter to convert his understanding of who this good news of Jesus Christ is for. And it starts with the abstract idea. See, the point of the whole vision of God letting this curtain down and telling Peter to eat these animals is that God is doing something new now where he's doing away with not just what used to be thought of as clean and unclean animals, but who would have been thought of as clean and unclean people. And Jesus then reinforces that same abstract idea of who the gospel's for in Peter's head through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 19. It says, while Peter's still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs, do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Now, if you're looking at your Bibles there, where it says, do not hesitate to go with them, I think there's a slightly better translation that we could use here that would read instead as to say, make no distinction. In fact, if you're using the paperback Bibles that we've got, it's got a little footnote that says that. Um, the Greek word that's used here, actually word pairing, is used two other times by Peter in the book of Acts. Both of those times are referring back to what the Spirit said to him in verse 20. And both of those times, most modern translations take it as make no distinction among them, which is what I think would actually be a better translation here as well and slightly better capture the abstract thought that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is putting in Jesus' head about who the gospel's for. An abstract thought that he's now about to connect with this sensory experience. If we read on, a couple days later, Peter gets to Cornelius' house. But it's not just Cornelius there. He has packed it out with friends and relatives. It is a house full of Gentiles. And in the midst of all of that, Cornelius gets up and says to him, I sent for you immediately as the angel commanded, you, commanded me to, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to say to us. And it's in that moment in this kind of packed-to-the-walls house full of Gentiles that it dawns on Peter that he's converted in that moment in his thinking about who the gospel's for. He's converted from saying just a few verses before that, surely not, Lord, I've never done or touched anything impure or unclean, to saying in verse 34, now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. And in those words, now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. We're seeing any sense of cultural and racial prejudice in Peter and you and me absolutely humbled and absolutely healed. You see, in one sense, 
what they're communicating when he says, now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, is that there's no room whatsoever for our sense of pedigree, our sense of upbringing, or our accomplishments to give us any sort of feeling of superiority or inferiority around anyone else around us. That as the Apostle Paul says later in the New Testament, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know what that word all means there? All. Everyone. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen. Every culture has fallen. There is not a single amount of good deeds you could ever do to make up for that. Everything has fallen. That from the vantage point of God, there is no place for anybody to ever carry this sense of cultural or racial prejudice to anyone around them because as far as God's concerned, we've all failed to live up to what he's required. Everyone has sinned. There's no amount of upbringing or accomplishments that could ever make up for that. There's no favoritism. All have sinned. And there's no favoritism because the Apostle Paul says after that, all are freely justified through faith in Jesus. You see, what's dawning on Peter in that moment, when he says, now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, in one sense, is the sin in all of us that cuts down any sense that we could ever carry of any cultural or racial prejudice. But in another sense, what's dawning on Peter in that moment is the absolute control, absolute sovereignty that God has over our salvation. That God's love in your life, it's not dependent on your deeds, but a declaration. That just as God declared in the vision to Peter, some food clean and some food unclean, now completely done away with, all of it's clean in the same way he sovereignly declares sinful people like you and me just forgiven and loved through faith in his son Jesus Christ. This is the conversion that needed to happen in Peter's thinking. That there's no favoritism for all have sinned. And there's no favoritism because now all can be freely justified, forgiven, and loved in Jesus. And it's this new understanding of God's grace that God will now use through Peter to set the church on a course for something that is completely world-changing. All right, so we looked at the confrontation, we looked at the conversion, now lastly we're going to look at the community that forms out of this. You see, in Peter's sermon at Cornelius' house, we see how the gospel message of no favoritism in God, the gospel message that all have sinned and all can be forgiven, how that creates this new community that is just as countercultural then as it is today. And the first thing we see is that it's a community that's formed only by Jesus. So starting in verse 34, Peter says again, Now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. In other words, that there is no racial or cultural barrier to the gospel, to God's love. And then he goes on to explain how that can be true how it is that he can stand up here in a house full of Gentiles, of people who didn't belong to God's people at that point, and say this to them. And what's interesting is when you read through uh, the book of Acts, 
Luke, the guy who's writing it, a lot of times explains to us what Jesus did to earn our salvation, but he doesn't always give a ton of details into how Jesus went about that. So you got to look for some kind of like little clues here and there. And we get one of those in the beginning of Peter's uh, sermon. So in verse 38, he talks about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And we are witnesses, he says, of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem until they killed him, hanging him on a cross. Now, the Greek word that he used uh, in that verse there, it actually isn't the word for cross. It's the word for tree. And in that, Luke is calling the attention of those people back to a verse in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament where it says that everyone who is hanged on a tree is under a curse by God. And in doing that, he's connecting that verse in Deuteronomy with Jesus' death here and showing us how it is that that death of Jesus saves us. You see, even though he didn't deserve it, When Jesus died on the cross, in that moment, he became cursed by God. Now, why would he do that? Why would God's only son willingly do that? Well, central to the Bible's idea of salvation is the idea of substitution. That you and I, on our own, we could never fix the sin that's in our lives. We need someone else to come and fix it for us. And with Jesus in that moment on the cross becoming the substitute for Cornelius and for Peter and you and me, when he was crucified in that moment, he took on himself every ounce of the punishment, of the wrath, of the curse that our sin demanded we should have had placed on us. He takes all of that on himself so that instead, through faith in him, you and I don't have to live under the curse of God, but can live under the blessing of God. This is how Peter can stand up in front of all these people who had no reason to belong to God's people at all and say God doesn't show favoritism, that there's no cultural or racial barrier to the gospel because even though we've all sinned, Jesus took that sin, that curse upon himself so that now through faith in him, anyone, anyone can be loved by God more than you ever dared imagine is possible. And it's this message that is now creating this new community that's formed by Jesus, and it's a community that's for all people. In verse 44, it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all who heard the message. In other words, on all who believed it. The circumcised believers had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And what's happening here in these verses, it's mirroring the exact language of the verses at Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2. So if you remember from a couple months ago, in Acts chapter 2, Jesus, after he's resurrected and ascends up to sit at God's right hand, he pours out his Holy Spirit on a group of Jewish 
Christians there at the time, and the Holy Spirit comes down on him, and they start speaking in all of these different languages, praising God. And what we have happening here is an exact mirroring of that language. As the Holy Spirit comes down now on these Gentiles who hear the message and begin speaking in all these different languages, And what Luke is showing us in this moment is that the people at Cornelius' house are now just as much a part of the people of God as the Jewish Christians were at the day of Pentecost. And why would Luke be trying to emphasize that? Well, to understand why, you got to zoom out just for a little bit. Remember, Luke is writing this about 30 years after the fact this is all happening. And he's writing it to a first century church that we can read about in the rest of the New Testament still wrestles very much with this sense of cultural and racial prejudice. And what Luke is doing here is connecting the dots, and he's making a very important point that the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians are one and the same now through Jesus. There's a sense where you almost get that Luke is trying to write this very crafty defense for the fact that now all different types of people can be welcome into the family of God. But even more than that, Luke is showing us that it's this way because God made it that way. I mean, if you look through the story, we don't have time to get into it, but God's fingerprints, his sovereignty, his control is over every moment of this story. Right? God is directing this the whole time, and he's doing that because what's going to happen through the rest of the book is we're going to read, it's only going to take off from there into this worldwide mission where the apostles now go out all over the place telling them that anyone now through faith in Jesus can be accepted into the family of God, can call God their father, can have salvation in him. The American uh, theologian Daryl Bach put it best. He said, if anyone had been disturbed at that point by the racial breadth In the new community of God, according to Luke, there was only one figure to blame for that, and it was God himself. God accomplished this. God was the one who was working through this whole passage, and he was working through his son Jesus. This we're reading here in Acts 10 is the heartbeat of the Father and the Son and the Spirit all working together to be able to say there's no favoritism. All have sinned, and all can be forgiven through Christ. And so if this is what God's doing in Jesus then and today, then I think there's two quick things that I'll close with here that we need to do. I think first, this means that we need to be able to critique our own cultures. This is not an original idea to me at all. Um, This is something that anybody who studies culture would tell you this. Um, But what I mean is we need to be able to remove ourselves from our dominant culture enough to kind of step back a little bit and get more of an objective view of what's going on in it. Uh, Google ran a campaign ad last year that said, question your lens. That was the whole tagline of it. And I think this is what we need to do as well. We need to be able to remove ourselves from our dominant culture from time to time to see the ways that it shaped and colored our view of the world. All right, we need to be able to step out and see the areas of beauty around us, but also to be able to see the areas of brokenness and sin around us that have become blind spots because this is just kind of the water that we swim in. And then through that, we can begin to be able to lovingly, generously critique our culture of the areas of it that aren't in line 
with the message of the gospel that we see here, remembering again the whole time that if we're really saved by grace, there is no room for an ounce of arrogance in any of this. And then after we critique our culture, we need to be able to convert our culture. Uh, Layman Sana, who's a, he's a professor at Yale University, he's a Christian, you know, he gets really at this when he says, you know, when you become a Christian, you don't leave your culture and heritage behind to kind of adopt some sort of Christian subculture. Like, that's not what we should be doing at all. Instead, after critiquing our culture, he says what we need to do is we need to own it. We need to love it. We need to embrace our culture that we're living in right now and redirect the areas of it that aren't in line with the truth of this message, that there's no favoritism in God, that all have sinned and all can be forgiven in Jesus. Redirect those areas back to the truth of that, whether that's our view of money, our view of race, our view of gender, our view of class, its view of belief, and in a sense, converting those elements back to the truth of the message that we see here today. And the reason that we can do this is because, as Peter says, there is no favoritism. There is no culture or race or class better suited for the gospel than anyone else. That, that the gospel isn't a message just for white people, just for Latinos, just for poor people, just for rich people. It's a message for sinners. And that's good news because that means that anyone here in this room can be loved through faith in Jesus more than they ever dared imagine possible. So let's pray and spend some time reflecting on this before we spend some time celebrating this message through the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, thank you for this good word that you've given us, that through your son Jesus, there is no favoritism, that in one sense we've all sinned, None of us have any ground for any sense of cultural or racial prejudice over anyone else. But in another sense, there is no favoritism because now all can be freely forgiven and loved through your son, Jesus Christ. God, thank you for what we see you doing in the book of Acts, that this was your control, your sovereignty, directing every moment of this because this was your heartbeat for the world. God, we pray that you would press this word deep into us right now, that we would not only know it, but we would know it to the sense that it shapes and changes who we are, that we would connect this abstract idea to this sensory experience now as we worship you, and that we would know that through faith in your Son, we are loved by you more than we ever dared imagine possible. Amen.